Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Hello, this is Simon Brew. I'm the editor of Film Stories magazine and a very warm welcome to the Film Stories podcast. I'm absolutely delighted to say that Brad Pitt has joined me for the opening of this podcast. Now, Brad, can you just tell me, just to warm people up, a little fact about yourself? I'm flesh and blood, but not human. I haven't been human for 200 years. That's, uh, That's lovely, Brad. Really lovely. Quick, roll the titles. Come with me. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. In movies. Movies that had stories. And the story just sucks them in. This is just the beginning. Stories. We would be honored if you would join us. Hello and a very warm welcome to Film Stories with Simon Brew. I am Simon Brew, as always, that's absolutely everything you need to know about me. The aim of the podcast, though, well, it's given away in the title. I'm here to talk of the stories of films, and I tend to talk about development stories, production stories, marketing stories, release stories, all the ingredients, really, that go towards making the films that we know and sometimes love. Just that, the films that we know and sometimes love. The films I tend to cover on this podcast lean more towards the mainstream than anything else. They're films I'm interested in or invested in to some degree. I try not to do snark. I try not to punch down. This podcast is a celebration of cinema and a real appreciation of just how difficult it is to get a movie off the ground. I think that's enough preamble as well. There's nothing really more you need to know, short of the fact that I cover two films in every episode, every regular episode, and I'm about to crack on with the first of them. I'm going to take you back to 1994. As always, I'm going to set things up with a clip from the trailer from the movie Concern, and we'll be telling the story, the other side of this. From the novel by Anne Rice. From Neil Jordan, the director of The Crying Game. I've come to answer your prayers. Life has no meaning anymore, does it? His name is Lestat. But what if I could give it back to you? Pluck out the pain and give you another life. One you could never imagine. I can see you lying on a bit of satin. He chose one man. He gave him infinite power. Eternal life. And a daughter who would be forever young. This is the only real evil left. And then he took the light of day. You're a vampire who never knew what life was until it ran out in a red gush over your lips. That then was a clip from 1994's Interview with the Vampire, directed by Neil Jordan, screenplay by Anne Rice based on her novel, and starring Tom Cruise, Brad Pitt, Antonio Banderas, Stephen Ray, Christian Slater and Kirsten Dunst. So the story begins with Anne Rice. And let's go all the way back to April 1976, when Rice, a then young author, published her first interview with the vampire novel. It would go on to be part of the broader Vampire Chronicles series of books, but in 1976 the reviews were pretty mixed and this stung Rice to the point where she wouldn't return to the world of vampires for nearly a decade with the 1985 book The Vampire Lestat. However, even by April 1976, Interview with the Vampire was interesting the Hollywood system and was already going through some degree of development, just not with an awful lot of luck. 
So it was Paramount Pictures that helped itself to first dibs. It actually secured the rights to interview the vampire just months before it was published and paid the princely sum of $150,000 to do so. This was more than 10 times the advance that Anne Rice had got for writing the book in the first place. And Paramount Pictures had an idea. It wanted to cast its 1970s heartthrob hero, John Travolta, off the back of successes in the likes of Grease and Saturday Night Fever in the role of the interviewer. Now, whether Travolta was interested or not, it's quite hard to track down, actually. And all I can discover about that iteration of the project, it just seemed to simply run out of steam. There was no Hollywood trade press report of it collapsing. But whether Travolta was interested or not, he wasn't going to be playing the interviewer in Interview with the Vampire. And the project just meandered at Paramount Pictures, that it's one of his executives at the time, the late Dawn Steele, would tell Anne Rice as reported in the book Conversations with Anne Rice, this movie is politically impossible to make right now. No one is going to make this movie. Now, Steele was talking as we moved into the 1980s and in particular the backdrop to the rise of the AIDS crisis that was a, a huge talking point in the 1980s with a lot of misunderstanding and mistreatment around it, but it meant that material that in any way related to blood and, and well, just anything that even nudged in the slightest bit towards something that could be implied to do with AIDS, well, Hollywood studios were running fast in the other direction. Now, Anne Rice still had ideas of how to do this, so the role of Louis in the film was certainly one she was experimenting with when she came up with another screenplay for the film in the 1980s, and she wrote it with the idea of putting Cher in that particular role. That too, though, came pretty much to nothing. But also in the 1980s, and this is what really got traction again behind the idea of an interview with the vampire film well Rice started writing vampire books again and boy did they start selling and so with Paramount Pictures out of the picture it was in the end Warner Brothers that decided to pick up the rights with David Geffen then brought in to produce the film Geffen in turn asked Anne Rice to write a script and the draft of the screenplay she turned in was said to run to 181 pages that it would bring in elements from more than one novel and as the old cliche goes one page Page of script equals one minute of screen time and so she'd effectively delivered what was expected to be a three-hour movie should that script have been filmed as presented well it wasn't filmed as presented but the screenplay has turned up online if you want to read it and you can see just how deeply it digs into further episodes in the Vampire Chronicles series of books it was in the 90, early 1990s, though, that things really turned because with David Geffen giving it some rocket fuel for one, it was it was moving forward anyway. But then also director Neil Jordan came aboard when he enjoyed significant success with a small independent film called The Crying Game. Now, The Crying Game was a film that was picked up by Miramax in the US and now convicted rapist Harvey Weinstein really put together a promotional campaign that turned it into both an Oscar contender and a box office contender too. But for the purposes of this particular story, it brought Neil Jordan very, very much to prominence. And so with the search on for a filmmaker to direct Interview with the Vampire, he was bubbling up at just the right time. And so it was it was an approach put into him as well as his producer, Stephen Woolley. And he was interested, as he would tell Sci-Fi Now back in 2020, he he went into this wanting to make the best version of the book that he could. But one thing he did was he paired back what Anne Rice had written. That I think it's pretty well known that Neil Jordan did a fair amount of work on the script. I'll come back to this shortly. But all references to other novels outside of the original interview with the vampire were taken out of the screenplay, which instantly got the running time back to closer to two hours. And a script was coming together that Jordan spent a lot of time working on, which meant that the emphasis now could turn to towards the casting of the film. Now, I'm relying a little bit on a memoir of David Geffen that was written by Tom King. There's a couple of quotes from that coming up shortly. And it would be fair to say that when we talk about the casting of Interview with the Vampire, it would overtake noise about the film itself for a significant period of its development. Because the casting wasn't just a puzzle for fans. I mean, Rutger Hauer was strongly favoured by one section of Anne Rice fandom. It was a puzzle for Anne Rice as well, but also for those involved 
off with the picture. It's jumping ahead just a tiny bit in the story to reveal that Tom Cruise took on the lead role of Lestat in Interview with the Vampire and he was a massively controversial choice, a hugely controversial choice. Crikey, I lived through this, I remember it. I mean, Neil Jordan would admit to The Independent fairly recently actually that even Brad Pitt, who had already been cast at that point, found the choice of Tom Cruise, quote, perplexing. Uh, Perplexing because for a while it was rumoured that Daniel Day-Lewis would in fact be taking on the role, that Rutger Hauer was regularly mentioned, but it was Day-Lewis who was expected to sign up. And so Tom King's memoir of David Geffen explores this and it talks about how Bob Bressel, um, an ex-acquaintance of Geffen and senior vice president of Warner Brothers, worked with Geffen in the first place to get the deal in place for Brad Pitt to play Louis in Interview with the Vampire. And it was Neil Jordan who then arranged to meet Daniel Day-Lewis in Dublin. Now, Day-Lewis at this point was filming In the Name of the Father and he reported back to Jordan that at that point he was so immersed and he was so involved in his work on In the Name of the Father that he couldn't even read the script for the vampire movie, uh, but promised to do so once he'd finished shooting and wrapping up on In the Name of the Father. Now, against all of this, there was a clock ticking on the rights to the film because David Geffen and Warner Brothers' option on Anne Rice's interview with the vampire was running out. That The film had to be before cameras by May of 1993 else an extra payment of one million dollars would need to be sent to Anne Rice's bank account. Now the other option was you don't pay the one million and you lose the rights and they revert back and so David Geffen took something of a gamble. He took a swing here that he paid for expensive double page ads in the trade press to announce the start of filming on Interview with the Vampire. The production was going to begin in April 1993 and what he wagered was that when Anne Rice saw this She'd think, finally, this film I've been waiting to uh, waiting for Hollywood to make for so long is finally going to happen. There's no way she'd call in her own rights. But Geffen had miscalculated a little bit here because what he hadn't appreciated was that Anne Rice was fed up with the Hollywood machine. That she'd been waiting, really, what, 10, 15 years for Hollywood Studio to get together and actually bring this book to the screen. And her patience had worn out. And so the even though Geffen was talking about how he would make sure that they shot the film for a week with Brad Pitt and Daniel Day-Lewis just putting some material on film at the end of April 1993, Rice wasn't budging. And also it didn't help that in the midst of all of this, Daniel Day-Lewis then turned the film down as well. And so the, Anne Rice was making it clear that she would allow the rights to revert back to her should filming not be underway in time. Now, with Daniel Day-Lewis out of the picture, the emphasis switched at that stage to Tom Cruise, that Geffen had thought of Tom Cruise beforehand, but the end of April came and went. And so that was the initial problem that had to be negotiated. Shooting absolutely wasn't underway, even though Cruise was interested and work was underway on getting Cruise to sign a contract. But there was no way that was going to be done by the end of April. And so in the end, what happened was David Geffen picked up the phone. He rang Anne Rice trying to smooth things over and she agreed to extend the rights without the extra payment being made but with the clear promise that this film is actually going to happen at this point. In the interim the deal was done to secure Tom Cruise to star as Lestat in Interview with the Vampire. He was though in the midst of making other movies at this point and so his schedule wasn't going to be freed up until October 1993 in order to be able to film the movie. Inevitably then, let's look at the casting of Tom Cruise in the film and the furore that surrounded it. I mean, Neil Jordan talked about how he chased down the idea of getting Tom Cruise to take the role on. He would describe to Sci-Fi Now how I've always thought he's a great actor, but his life is also not unlike the life of a vampire. He said, you know what I mean? Famous people don't want to go out into an unmediated space. They have to control who they meet and how they meet them. They have to control their image. It's almost like they live in a spectral kind of world, Jordan argued. And so just as an analogy, that made sense to me. And so in the end, they agreed to do the film together. But as Jordan described, everybody got really angry. 
And if you weren't around at the time of the casting of Tom Cruise in the interview with the vampire, let me assure you, people, even in the pre-internet age, really, got really, really angry. None more so than Anne Rice, who famously went absolutely nuclear. She gave an interview to the Los Angeles Times and she talked about how it's like casting Huck Finn and Tom Sawyer in the movie when she heard that it was definitely going to be Tom Cruise and Brad Pitt. She famously took out a double page advert denouncing the casting. She said that Cruise is no more my vampire Lestat than Edward G. Robinson is Rhett Butler. I'm not sure he knows what he's getting into. Cruise should do himself and everyone else a service and withdraw. She was adamant she didn't want Cruise in the film. Geffen was at the time, also forced to deny to the Los Angeles Times that Brad Pitt was unhappy with the casting of Tom Cruise. We sort of learnt subsequently that he was. Cruise, at this point, just didn't really comment on Anne Rice's words. But again, going to the Los Angeles Times report, it noted that Cruise was hurt by her comments, and understandably so. Still, it was Tom Cruise, it was Brad Pitt. Then there was the, the, the small matter of the young girl role in the film. And uh, let's go back to Neil Jordan talking to Sci-Fi Now because they discovered basically Kirsten Dunst and gave her a massive break as, as a young actor at that point. And he said, we tested a lot of young actors. And he said, what struck me about Kirsten was she was already a practised actor. She must have been only about 10, but she was just extraordinary. She ripped through those scenes. And Jordan said, first of all, I thought, OK, this person can play the role without a doubt. But then also... I thought this person has acting in their soul. With the likes of Antonio Banderas also coming aboard, River Phoenix cast as the interviewer, the ensemble was looking really, really smart. Then there was how do you realise the vampire makeup effects and the sheer look of it? And the go-to person to call was Stan Winston, a Hollywood legend for this kind of work. And we, I mean, Winston explained how they wanted to create a sense of veins about how they wanted the veins underneath their face showing through like they're not entirely human and the skin had become too thin and Jordan said at this point I just had a child and kids love to hang upside down he said I noticed how their veins would pop when they did that so I said to Stan let's try to get this vein look on the actors and so what they apparently did was they got Brad Pitt and Tom Cruise imagine this and hung them upside down and while they were hung upside down, they traced the veins on their faces uh, gently, apparently. And they had to hang upside down for 20 minutes at a time in order for Stan Winston to get the reference material that he needed. While all the pre-production was going on, and this was going to be a handsomely costed production as well, the script remained in some degree of flux. That Anne, Anne Rice's draft was being significantly rewritten by Neil Jordan, apparently. Now, Jordan wouldn't get credit, and he would comment on this, that Anne Rice gets sole screenwriter credit on Interview with the Vampire. And the implication was that Jordan was a little bit disappointed by that, but he wouldn't go on about it. it. It doesn't come up particularly. I just remember it from the time. But the script remained in some degree of flux. And Brad Pitt, for one, would admit that he didn't actually see a screenplay proper until two weeks before the start of shooting. And he felt when he read it that the interesting stuff about his character was pretty much gone. Now, Brad Pitt wasn't movie star Brad Pitt at this point. He'd broken through off the back of Thelma and Louise and an infamous role in that particular movie. So he didn't really have the clout to push back significantly. But there was a degree of disappointment when he received the written words. Filming, nonetheless, would get underway on October the 18th, 1993. There'd be a little bit of work in France. There'd be work in the US. But the basis of it would be the 007 stage at Pinewood Studios here in the UK. But early on in the shoot came an absolute hammer blow to the production with the tragic and hugely premature death of the then 23-year-old River Phoenix. Now, he was the interviewer in the movie and inevitably a shadows over the movie for, for the rest of it 
its filming and and its release too that uh, his friend Christian Slater would step into the role but would not take a salary for doing so instead funds would be donated to charity but that was a, 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 an incredibly difficult thing for all concerned to go through it wasn't the easiest production anyway I mean a lot of it by nature of the material had to be shot at night that Dante Ferretti was the production designer and Jordan's approach to this was half historical epic and half an vampire epic he was spending a budget he'd not been presented with before and he wanted to make it look as good as humanly possible now David Geffen for one was I mean he'd initially told Neil Jordan and Stephen Woolley that he really wanted to be quote intimately involved with the day-to-day production of the picture I'm quoting Tom King's book not Geffen himself but apparently shortly after arriving on the set when the film was shooting in Louisiana in the US, Geffen's interest, uh, uh, the actual day-to-day practicalities of shooting the movie, was was waning a little. That that wasn't really where he positioned himself the best. And so, as a rule, he would be said, he said really not to have spent more than a few days at a time on the sets of his film. And it wasn't where he was at its most his most comfortable. But he wasn't the only one. I mean, Brad Pitt, for one, was at his most comfortable either. In fact, he would return to Louisiana for the 2011 movie Moneyball, which I've covered before on this podcast. And it was while he was doing interviews for that with Entertainment Weekly, the interviewer put to him that he just looked miserable in interview with the vampire. And he just said, I am miserable. Six months in the clucking dark it says and Brad Pitt talked about having to wear yellow contact lenses the the makeup that had to be caked on the hairdo he had to wear as well and he just said he just wasn't enjoying it at all he said that he fell in love with New Orleans while he was based there and how he'd ride his bike around at night when they were shooting nights and he'd he'd make some good friends while he was there but he was that miserable on the film that he decided life is too short for this quality of life and he says I called David Geffen who was a good friend the producer of the film and he'd just come to visit and he said David I can't do this anymore I can't do it what will it cost me to get out and Geffen said very very calmly to Brad Pitt 40 million dollars and he was like Okay, thank you very much. And Pitt said that that took the anxiety off him, knowing that he couldn't get out of the film. He couldn't afford to come out of this at all. And he just said, I've got to man up and ride this through. And that's what I'm going to do. And production in the end would wrap up in March on March the 14th, 1994. Neil Jordan then, as as you would expect, got to work on producing his cut of the film. And alongside editors Mick Audsley and Joke Van Vick, they came up with a version of the movie that was running to what, about two and three quarter hours, which was put in front of David Geffen. Now, this was a very bloody cut of the film, but Geffen really loved it. He was really impressed with how well the film had turned out. And he couldn't imagine that Anne Rice wouldn't be keen on it either, should she finally see the film that she'd read well, I mean she'd been kept distant from the production during the filming of it and had no involvement with it but now they had something to show her if she'd only sit down and watch it and just see the film in its nearly completed state Geffen also saw that if he could turn Anne Rice onto its onto the side of the picture then that's a very very powerful marketing weapon that she'd have and so what he did was he scheduled a top secret test screening now this isn't the test screening that Neil Jordan wanted he was still editing the film he still knew it had to be shorter and so the last thing he wanted in the midst of all of that was a a test screen also the test screening would have to be really 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 secretive uh, and and very very hidden and so Geffen arranged one and invited Anne Rice along that Tom Cruise and the entire cast were going to be there as well as well as executives from Warner Brothers too Anne Rice though declined the invitation she was unable to get there the screening though went incredibly well that it two jets of executives and filmmakers went along David Geffen took his jet there was the Warner Brothers jet as well and the test screening got underway and then the back couple of rows in came a whole bunch of people silently filing in to watch the movie including Tom Cruise including Brad Pitt including 
including David Geffen, including the heads of Warner Brothers as well. And the response to the test screening was really strong too. Inevitably, it brought up the matter that the film was was too bloody and was too long, but they knew that going in. But the general consensus was this film was really, really working. And so Geffen thought he's going to try again to get Anne Rice on side. And he did so without telling everyone else, from what I understand, what he was up to. Because he arranged for a video cassette of the movie to be made and it was sent to Anne Rice's address and she opened up the package and decided to watch the film. And her response was a two page advert in the trade press, a complete reverse ferry that she talked about just how much she loved the film, how she got it wrong, how now she thought that this was a fantastic movie that she was delighted with. And she was reserving special praise for the likes of Tom Cruise as well. In fact, Cruise and Anne Rice had a phone conversation, a fantastic conversation, reported the Los Angeles Times. Neil Jordan didn't have the conversation with Rice, but he, he was reached for comment he was in Dublin at the point and he said that he was very glad she's finally happy this has always been her book and that's important I loved her book and I really wanted to be true to it and Warner Brothers was building confidence in the movie as well that it was looking to move its release date forward a week to November the 11th 1994 now the thinking there was that would give it a longer lead-in to the big holiday blockbuster season it would allow the film to gather up ahead of steam the problem was that it put it next to Kenneth Branagh's film Mary Shelley's Frankenstein that was set for release on the 4th of November. So on the 4th of November you had a Frankenstein movie, on the 11th of November, these are US release dates, you had a vampire story and was there enough audience really for both of them to work out? Well, first and foremost, Interview with the Vampire had to go before the critics. And the response to it was, was, again, I say surprisingly strong. But I only say so because the tabloid ink in the build-up to the film had not been on the positive side. The reviews that were coming in were praising of the performances. I mean, Kirsten Dunst and Brad Pitt in particular. But also, people went out of their way to talk about just how Tom Cruise put in one hell of a performance. That it was an unexpected performance. That even though people hadn't initially seen him in the role, he really, really delivered in the part. And he was getting some really terrific critical notices. The general consensus on the film was good. Some said very good. But the feeling was that when you consider just what a backdrop the film was made against, this really had come out as something really rather good. Now, the week before Mary Shelley's Frankenstein had opened to, and I've covered it before on this podcast, had opened to more muted box office than was expected. Mary Shelley's Frankenstein was the successor to Bram Stoker's Dracula, which had been a big box office hit. Mary Mary Shelley's Frankenstein did not repeat the same trick. It would lead Kenneth Branagh to go on to make the film In the Bleak Midwinter, a much smaller production. If you dial back a few podcast episodes, you could hear Kenneth Branagh talking about that. But for the purposes of this, Interview with the Vampire had cost to get onto the screen around 60 million dollars its opening weekend in the u.s with an r rating as well was 36.3 million this was a hit it was helped by tom cruise star power certainly but there was no getting away from the fact that this was a hit in its own right that it was number one by distance the other big opener that weekend was the first the santa claus movie with 19 million the santa claus would continue earning money for several weeks you'll be surprised to hear Third place was Stargate, three weeks into its run. That had been a surprise hit. Pulp Fiction was in fourth. That had been around for just over a month. Frankenstein in fifth. It dropped drastically on its second week in release. Other films hanging around the top ten. There was the film The War with Elijah Wood and Kevin Costner, a minor drama that was doing okay-ish business. Sylvester Stallone and Sharon Stone in The Specialist. That hardly set the box office alight, but Forrest Gump had on its 19th week of release. That was still in eighth place. There was The River Wild around. Love Affair with Warren Beatty and Annette Benning never got a UK cinema release that that rounded out the top 10 Interview with the Vampire held virtually half of its audience for its second week though and thoroughly cemented its hit status even beyond the curiosity value people were seeking it out it was knocked off the top spot by Star Trek Generations which opened with 23 million also opening the following week was Lay on the Professional which was in fifth place and would go on to earn a reasonable amount of money 
But Interview with the Vampire would hang around for a good few weeks, even as competition in the likes of Junior, A Low Down Dirty Shame came along. And it wouldn't be out of the top five at the US box office until, the, what, the 9th of December, when Disclosure popped up, as well as Wesley Snipes in Drop Zone. By the time Interview with the Vampire finished its run in US cinemas, I should actually give it its proper title, Interview with the Vampire, colon, The Vampire Chronicles. It had done $105 million of business, a really successful project, a really successful critical project, a really successful commercial project. And because Tom Cruise was in the lead role as well, that helped sell the movie overseas, that it did another 100 million or so outside of the US. Total box office return of $223 million. And all concerned, were happy with that to the point where it was decided, let's press ahead with another of Anne Rice's books, that they still had the option they could go ahead and make an interview with the vampire too, if you like. And the focus there was going to be on the novel Le Vampire Lestat, which for a while Neil Jordan was trying to get moving. In fact, Warner Brothers was looking to get it moving relatively quickly, although Tom Cruise's commitments to other projects, such as Mission Impossible was around this time, for instance, would kibosh his eventual involvement in it. In fact, Tom Cruise committed to make Eyes Wide Shut with Stanley Cooper and that bricked out two years of his life and it got to the point where Warner Brothers was back in a familiar position that it needed to get another Anne Rice project moving by the year 2000 else the rights would revert to Anne Rice and so it decided to go back to square one and it jumped past the Vampire Lestat and decided to make Queen of the Damned instead and this was not a decision that Anne Rice was privy to really in fact it was reported that she wasn't privy either to the changes that were being made to the book when it was adapted she'd offered to write a screenplay for the Vampire Lestat that she would have done for minimum rate but again Warner Brothers was not interested in that it'd been slightly burned from working with her before but also i think she'd been slightly burned from working for warner brothers as well she did decide she did say in an interview though that the choice of doing queen of the damned from scratch was quote bizarre Still, in 1999, Scott Abbott and Michael Petroni came in to write a screenplay. Michael Reimer was hired to direct. The decision was made to shoot the film in Australia. That would keep the production costs down. Warner Brothers just needed to get the film moving in time so it could maintain its rights. And without Tom Cruise, in came Stuart Townsend to take on the role of Lestat. Townsend was fresh from being defenestrated from the Lord of the Rings trilogy, uh, a series of films he started making but he was replaced on those films fairly early on but it was a film that never really caught fire in the same way as interviewed the vampire and now in more recent times the vampire chronicles i mean we've lost Anne rice in recent years the vampire chronicles have come back to life as a television series but as jordan would reflect on interview with the vampire to sci-fi now he just talked about it was a totally unique situation he said i was given as big of a budget as hollywood gave at the time and a unique project and i was allowed to make it the way i make independent movies with some cover, it should be noted there, from Stephen Woolley uh, having his producer on set. And he said, with two of the biggest stars in the world at the time. It was weird and it was wonderful. And after everything, it was also a fairly sizable hit. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online you'll experience the all-new Cerebral Way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. 
So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Which brings me to the halfway point of this episode of Film Stories. As always, thank you for listening and thank you for your time. I'm just going to do a few parish notices while you're here that if you like this podcast and don't mind supporting it, there are a few ways you can do so. Financially first, if you go to patreon.com slash Brew and don't mind putting a few pounds in our funds there, you in exchange get the podcast early, you get the podcast ad free, you get an update on the gossip of what we're up to behind the scenes as well, including some of the upcoming specials we've got of the podcast. Costing you absolutely nothing is to subscribe at your podcast home of choice. That's massively appreciated too. Likewise, if you can leave ideally a hugely positive review for those of us who don't have marketing budgets or massive enterprises or companies behind us it the best way to to make the algorithms happy and to push us up the list is if you can subscribe and leave those hugely positive reviews thank you so much to everyone who's done so i have also just sent to print issue 48 of our latest print magazine film stories this is the uk's biggest film magazine a 168 page film magazine on nice paper we are leading with a massive exclusive on the upcoming Bob Marley biopic One Love and we've got loads of conversations about that in the issue. You can find more on Film Stories and also Film Junior magazine at store.filmstories.co.uk. I think that's enough plugs for now. I'm going to move on to the second of the two films I'm talking about in this episode of Film Stories. I'm going to stay in the 1990s as well. This one's a biopic, a biopic of a legend who, at the time of recording, we lost relatively recently. Let me play you a clip from the trailer. I'm going to come to the story, the other side of this. What is wrong with you? Cut out all that wild gyration and blues shouting. All she ever had was her voice and her dreams. Your mama had to go away for a while. When is she coming back to get me? She ain't, honey. She just ain't. All she ever wanted was a chance to make her dreams come true. Does every woman in here want to sing with Ike's band? Oh, please don't leave me, baby. That girl can sing. Girl, you shocked the hell out of me. <laughs> they want me to be his new singer. Watch yourself. You know what they say about Ike. Darling. Yes, Tina. I think it's gonna work out fine. It's gonna work out fine. Priceless, girl. Priceless. Priceless, all right. She ain't seen a dime of it yet. And that was a clip from What's Love Got to Do With It, the 1993 version, directed by Brian Gibson, screenplay by Kate Lanier, and based on the book I, Tina by Tina Turner and Kurt Loder. The cast of the film headlined by Angela Bassett and Lawrence Fishburne. It was back in 1986 that music legend Tina Turner, very much at the height of her fame as a solo artist, decided to pen her memoir and lift the lid on the horrific abuse that she'd suffered earlier in her life. The explosive book, I, Tina, that she co-wrote with Kurt Loder, lifted the lid on the abuse she suffered at the hands of her ex-husband, Ike, and the way that she rebuilt in the wake of her marriage ending. It was a year or two after that, after the book had become a firm bestseller, that the New York Times reported Disney had been sniffing around and confirmed that through its Touchstone Pictures arm had optioned the book with a view of making it as a feature film. That Touchstone Pictures was the bit of Disney that allowed it to make, inverted commas, adult pictures. It also had the Hollywood Pictures label that it used a lot more in the 1990s. And so the Disney logo would be nowhere near it, but Touchstone would. Now, this was still frugal era Disney, where it wasn't spending mega bucks on movie stars. It was looking for lower budget films that were more profitable rather than great big stonking blockbusters. And the feeling was that it could option the film, make it without star power, but the name of Tina Turner would help it earn some box office juice. 
Disney turned to Howard Ashman to write the script. Now, Howard Ashman is a hugely important figure in Walt Disney Animation Studios that he's widely credited that helping fuel the resurgence of Walt Disney Animation with his contribution to the films The Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast. Ashman's story is told in Don Han's superb documentary. I've talked to Don Han on this podcast about it, Howard, which is available on Disney+. Plus. At this point, he was more known for co-penning the musical Little, Little Shop of Horrors with his regular collaborator, Alan Menken. But he had a couple of passes of the script of the Tina Turner biopic and he would deliver, I think it was two drafts before he passed away way too early in March of 1991. The drafts weren't quite what Disney was looking for at this point either. And so following the loss of Ashman, Kurt Loder was approached to see if he wanted to adapt the the memoir he'd co-written into a script, but Loder didn't really like the levity that Disney was looking to inject into the picture. He was he wanted the dark parts of the story to stay pretty much intact, so he would turn the job down. And instead, Kate Lanier was hired to screen to screenwrite the film that would become What's Love Got to Do With It. She remains the credited writer on the movie. Now, Tina Turner also did push for certain things to be included in the film. She didn't win every battle there, and I'll come to that a little bit later. Lanier was just 28 when she got the job, and a Los Angeles Times piece from 1993 did note that filmmakers were quite solemnly swear that the Disney suits didn't try to boulderise the story's seedier elements, is how it described them, interesting phrase there and as Lanier would say they kept saying to me you wrote the first orgasm in Disney history how about that her script nonetheless went through 17 different drafts and it actually sat in development for a good few years before the studio eventually decided to fast track it and boy did they fast track it because it got to a point where it was looking to move really really quickly now for a while Taylor Hackford he of an officer and a gentleman and against all odds was attached to direct the film he got experience in music videos as well he seemed a relatively sound choice as well but Hackford would soon be off the project and in his place came Mario Van Peebles now Van Peebles was also been eyed to take on the role of Ike Turner in the film as well as directing it but in the end he opted for a different project the 1993 western posse and so the attention then turned to a british director by the name of brian gibson now gibson was attached to a different film at this point for paramount pictures a movie called the thing called love which would go on to star river phoenix and samantha mathis but in the autumn of 1992 as he was about to commit to the thing called love he was offered the tina turner movie now the deal from disney at a point again where Disney was very frugal was more lucrative than the one that Paramount was offering so Gibson went back to Paramount to ask it to match the salary he was being offered by Disney. Now this was the point where Paramount dithered and it just took a little bit too much time to go back to Brian Gibson and say yep we'll pay you that money but by the time it did so Brian Gibson had instead done the deal with Touchstone to direct What's Love Got To Do With It. He'd had experience with feature films, he directed Poltergeist 2 and Breaking Glass to this point, he'd also uh, worked in and around music productions too and so he took on that and it was Peter Bogdanovich who would instead come in to direct The Thing Called Love which would be notable for River Phoenix's final completed screen performance. With the director now on board, this is towards the end of 1992, the search was now on to find an actor to embody the character, the personality, the life of Tina Turner on screen. And the inevitable broad search got underway, which was soon honed down to three names. That The three main contenders for the part were Halle Berry, again an unknown at this point, Robin Givens and Angela Bassett. Now Tina Turner had to bless whichever selection was ultimately made and it would be Angela Angela Bassett, who who won through in the end. Now, remarkably, she would be cast in the film just 30 days before the start of shooting. I mean, imagine that. You look at how Austin Butler was cast as Elvis Presley months, even a year before Baz Luhrmann shot the Elvis biopic. More recently, Kingsley Benadir was cast as Bob Marley in the upcoming biopic at the time of this being recorded, One Love. He had about nine, ten months to get into the 
headspace and the character of Bob Marley, Angela Bassett had 30 days. She didn't have clout. She was an inexperienced movie actor at this point, And she was taking the lead role in a Disney production, well, a Touchstone production, and playing Tina Turner. And she would be putting in 16 hour days for that month to get on top of the role. She had to learn the musical numbers. She had to learn the dance moves. She would, I'll come to this shortly, spend time with Lawrence Fishburne as well on key scenes depicting the violence and the domestic abuse that Tina Turner suffered. And Bassett reflected to Variety in a piece in 2023 about how she just went through even just a load of preparation just for the screen test that she would test opposite a number of actors. One of those who ultimately wasn't cast in the film was Samuel L. Jackson. She would meet with Tina Turner for the first time just before the screen test and then after she landed the role she met Turner again who took her through materials from her own archive and told her stories and also she was training with choreographer by the name of Michael Peters and it was Turner who just basically told Michael Peters you've got to let Angela Bassett learn all these routines without having to wear five inch stilettos. Uh, she, She has to learn them with bare feet. It has to be comfortable. She has to find a way into this. Still, Bassett would spend most of that month learning those routines with Tina Turner and with Michael Peters and it got to such a point that the training was so intense she would have to see a chiropractor for the pain just for what she was putting her body through. She was getting up at five in the morning, she was doing a couple of hours in the gym, then it was ten hours working with Michael Peters on the performance, on the musical performance side of the role. She wasn't really have time to sit down for dinner, it was on the go. She would be having her broccoli, her spring beans, her potato, her chicken breast. She was allowed black coffee and water to wash them down and it was straight back into the training. Meanwhile, Aranda Marietta Carter was working on makeup. Again, Tina Turner had input there. Ruth Carter was designing costumes, making dresses from scratch for Angela Bassett to wear. And even though Bassett was in place, there was still the just cementing who was going to play Ike Turner. So let's take the story back to Lawrence Fishburne. Fishburne and Bassett had actually worked together already on John Singleton's extraordinary debut feature, Boys in the Hood. But Fishburne hadn't been initially keen on taking on the role of Ike Turner in What's Love Got to Do With. Angela Bassett was well aware of this as well. It became known that Lawrence Fishburne had turned the role down, reported five times before he ultimately agreed to make it. And he would describe how he turned it down on the basis of the script that that he first read, that he said it was pretty one-sided. He knew going into it that Ike Turner was, quote, obviously the villain of the piece, but he said there was no explanation as to why he behaved the way he behaved in the screenplay, why she was even with him for 16 to 20 years, what it was that made her stay. And so a little bit of late beefing up work on the script was done, that Williams Mastro Simone, who'd worked on Extremities, was brought in to beef up the Ike Turner part in the film. And as, I, I mean, in the end, as Kate Lanier would reflect to the Los Angeles Times, He was brought in as a man, quote, to do a man's writing. Filming would get underway once Lawrence Fishburne rang Angela Bassett up and said, yeah, I'm going to do it. They they worked together for a little while on the key haunting scenes in the film. And filming could get underway on December the 9th, 1992. Now, the shoot would take in Chicago, California, Mexico, Missouri, Tennessee. The Universal Backlot in Los Angeles was where large chunks were shot. There was a little bit of work done in London as well. And it was working again to a frugal production budget of $19 million all in. Now, Brian Gibson was a fairly exacting director by the stories that were told that he, I mean, for one, he wasn't really a fan of the costumes that Bassett would be given. And she talked about this in the variety look back at the movie. Uh, now, the truncated preparation period didn't help here. But they, along with Ruth Cartier, who's working on the costumes, she, Bassett said, Ruth and I got smart because it was a hassle. She said, we'd take Polaroids of tomorrow's look and give it to the director. And he would look at them and say, OK, Okay, that's good. That works. But then we show up on set the next day and he would not like it again. And in the end, what they did was at the end of each day shooting, Angela Bassett would put on the costume she was going to wear for the following day for Brian Gibson to approve. 
Gibson took lots of takes by the sounds of it and they worked long days as Bassett would say we literally worked 16 hour days on the smallest of things like cutting a ribbon and whereas I could not as an up and coming actor to this white male British director Lawrence could say I think we got it we got it and then we could all go home get some rest to be ready for the next day. Bassett described the shoot of the film of how every day was monumental. She said there weren't light days like, oh, I get to stand at the edge of a cliff and look out at the ocean. She said, no, every day you're dancing Proud Mary or you're dealing with something very emotional. Now, a trigger warning here. There is a sequence in the movie that depicts rape and Bassett knew that she was going to have to film it and she also knew that the way the production had been going to that point she could not do a 16 hour day where she would be expected to do take after take after take after take of that with the full crew there as well and so this is where she turned to Lawrence Fishburne who had her back and she expressed her concerns again Bassett was a new inexperienced actor in the eyes of Hollywood and so it's Fishburne who turned to Brian Gibson and said how many times do you want to shoot this sequence and Gibson said he was going to need four or five takes of it. Fishburne said, you got four maximum. We're going to do it in four with the crew out to set up the cameras by all means. But then the crew outside the studio, we're going to get this and then we're going to move on. Tina Turner was a presence around the production. She visited the set a few times. She would make on the spot corrections when she was there. She was she was on top of how she was being portrayed in the film, but she wasn't there for every working day. However, Bassett would say that she was a constant presence through the making of the film, how she was there at the rehearsals, how she was at the store when they were buying blouses, how they Tina Turner took her into storage to get the original Disco Inferno costume and allowed Angela Bassett to wear that in the film and also even though she wasn't on the set Turner was calling Angela Bassett uh, to find out how she was doing Bassett said she was always telling me that I was perfect just perfect and you're just praying and working every day to serve her story Bassett explained in terms of Ike Turner, he, I mean, Disney told Brian Gibson, for one, that you don't meet him. There is no advantage to meeting Ike Turner. Keep distance from him. Lawrence Fishburne met him once during the filming of the movie, but there was a general discouragement and keeping him at arm's length. And there'd just been that one interaction when filming wrapped up on February the 25th, 1993. The release of the film was scheduled for June of that year. There wasn't a lot of editing time. Stuart Papo was the editor on the movie, but they got pretty much all of this in camera, that they'd worked the script quite hard before they started shooting. But still, even though Gibson, who, it's worth noting actually, Gibson had won an Emmy for directing the Joseph Baker story, so that he had form in this area of filmmaking. He admitted to the Los Angeles Times, ahead of the release of the film, we leave a lot out. And he said, if someone lived 60 years, let's say Tina's lived 50 plus years and you've got two minutes a year. And he just argued a drawing of someone's face, even if it's only caught seven lines, if it's done by a really good artist, that person's caught a truth by making certain choices. And so that was the approach they took. He said, you take a line through a life like the theme of desertion. That's what he focused on. Is that important to Tina's life? He would say yes. So you emphasise it in terms of which scenes you develop. Now, Turner had pushed for a few more spiritual things, things to do with the afterlife included in there, and also the inclusion of Ike Turner's common law wife, uh, the birth of her first child. There were big life events that were that were either glossed over or sanitised or removed. There was also the uh, inclusion of the song River Deep Mountain High suggested that the response to it was very different to how it initially was in real life. And so there were liberties taken and they knew they were taking liberties and Turner had pushed back on some of them. The rest of them really pretty much got through. Still, when the film went before critics ahead of its US release, the I mean, the, the response to it was strong, in particular, the fact that it was powered by these two stunning central performances. Uh, jumping towards the end of this story, what's love got to do with it would just get two Oscar nominations and they would be for its leading actor and its leading actress. Both Lawrence Fishburne and Angela Bassett got Oscar nominations for their work in the film. Neither one, in the case of Angela Bassett, that's 
really quite something. I think her performance in this is extraordinary. In fact, Lawrence Fishburne's performance is extraordinary. The winners that year were Holly Hunter for The Piano won Best Actress. Tom Hanks won Best Actor for Philadelphia. I don't think I, anyone could argue if Bassett and Fishburne had taken home the trophies. The actual biopic structure was relatively conventional. That was noted in a few reviews, but it was the powerhouse performances that really came through. There was uh, there was a, a, an argument that the decision by the film to move to Tina Turner's actual concert footage at the end just slightly did Angela Bassett short because to that point she even though they were they were talking about having leg doubles and things in the film Bassett had done everything but the singing she'd lip synced the uh, songs which Tina Turner sang for the film but she'd done all the dance moves she'd done all the physicality of it she'd done all the difficult scenes in there and then the film at the end cuts to the actual Tina Turner in concert and that was noted in one or two critical reviews as well but again I think it's just a tiny point in the midst of a biopic that may have very a, a very conventional construct but has these enormous wonderful performances at the heart. Disney decided to, uh, sorry, Touchstone, decided to open the film on 58 screens in the middle of summer, the weekend of June the 11th to the 13th, 1993, aiming to get word of mouth and then broaden the release out. What was the big release that week? Oh yeah, Jurassic Park. Have you heard of that? That opened in number one place on 2,400 screens, $47 million. But on its 58 screens, what's love got to do with it, garnered $1.2 million in takings. Now, its screen average was $21,000 per screen and only one film beat that this week that that particular week which was Orlando which was only playing in three screens Jurassic Park screen average was $19,000. The word of mouth on what's love got to do with it was strong enough that Disney upped the screen count by 370 the following week and the film promptly burst into the top five at the US box office even as Arnold Schwarzenegger opened up in Last Action Hero in second place. So 3.6 million it took on its second weekend. The other films around were Cliffhanger, Made in America, Guilty as Sin, Dave... Menace to Society, Life with Mikey. Crikey, what a film. The following week, uh, I mean, this was a very, very busy summer, it should be noted. Out came Sleepless in Seattle. Out came Dennis or Dennis the Menace if you're in the US. Jurassic Park wasn't budging from the top spot. But what's love got to do with it was quietly building up its takings. An R-rated film as well. Took 5.4 million its third week on release as its screen count continued to rise and was still in the top five at the box office. And in fact, by the time it eventually completed its US box office run, a very tidy 39.1 million had been taken. With Disney knowing full well that that this would do well on video, that the soundtrack album would sell, that this would be a constant performer for the studio too. Outside of the US, it added another 20, 22 million dollars to the overall box office take was 61 million. So a profitable venture. Tina Turner, though, would say that she never watched the film. Now, of course, we're talking as we've lost her fairly recently at the point this has been recorded, as I said before. She told Angela Bassett that she'd never watched it, although at one point she did let on to Bassett that she she thought that Bassett's performance was tremendous. And so a little bit of ambiguity there. But there was a documentary feature that came out a couple of years ago called Tina, an authorised documentary of Tina Turner, when I, I get the impression she knew her life was coming to an end. She said that that documentary was her farewell to her fans and she discussed the What's Love Got To Do With It film in that particular feature. She admitted there that she hadn't watched the movie, that there were events in there in her life that she just didn't want to revisit. Why would she sit there and watch it? And she would eventually say in an interview that she wished that the biopic had contained, quote, more truth, but the studio felt that the public would not believe everything that actually happened to to her. The Tina documentary that followed is far, far more candid, but the What's Love Got To Do With It movie, even though it, 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 it does just underplay certain key and very difficult parts of Tina Turner's life, is very much worth seeking out, not least for the performances at the heart of it. 
It's not just Tina Turner we've lost. I should note that Brian Gibson would would he would pass from cancer at the age of just 59. He would only make two more movies. 1996's The Juror, starring Demi Moore. I always remember the trailer for that. They they called it The Juror. It was very oddly pronounced. The trailer for that. 1998, Still Crazy, as well, was the last film that he'd make. He was planning more films before his life was taken away. And then, of course, Tina Turner herself. Uh, the only place to end the story. Who passed in May of 2023 at the age of 83, leaving behind a phenomenal, a phenomenal body of work. And also two feature films that told the story of her life, one of which slightly more accurate than the other by the sounds of it, both of which I would suggest very, very, very worth seeking out. And that brings me to the end of this latest episode of Film Stories. As always, thank you so much for listening and thank you for your time. If I've not bored you completely, you can find more from me on Twitter at Simon Brew. I'm on Blue Sky at Simon Brew as well. You can find Film Stories on Twitter at Film Stories. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash film stories online. We're at YouTube at youtube.com slash film stories. You can find us on, you can find our website at filmstories.co.uk. That's updated every weekday with movie news, reviews, features. We're doing gaming and TV on there as well. We're doing it in a very non-clickbaity way as well, which is why I do have to ask people to support it, really, because if you don't play the clickbait game, you don't get as many clicks if you're not careful. And so we're very grateful on all the word of mouth that's brought people to us. And then if you go to store.filmstories.co.uk, that is where you will find all of our print magazines for sale. We have loads of them now. We're really proud of our independent publishing. I love film magazines. I love the fact that thanks to your support, we get to make film magazines for not just not just everyone, but also younger filmmakers, younger film film fans and potential filmmakers as well. I think that's it though. I think I've gone on far too long as always. So it just leaves me to say thank you so much for your support and thank you for listening. I will be back soon with another bunch of film stories. Until then, you all look after yourselves and take care. Bye-bye. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.